Chapter 44. Hear now, Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. So again, he is appealing to his people. And here we have a dichotomy of verses. Some talk about the idolaters and what happens to them, and some talk about the ones who become his servants and what happens to them. The fact that Isaiah kind of mixes the two up like that, back and forth, is itself showing you that there's ambivalence there in people's attitudes. Which way are they going to go? They've got to decide now. Like in the days of Joshua, choose you this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And that is what's like when the servant performs his mission. There's a lot of ambivalence. Some people do and some don't. Thus says the Lord your Maker, who formed you from the womb and succored you. In their alienated state, they need to be reminded that God is the actual creator of them. He gave them birth. They're his children. You see that motif of the birth there in connection with the Lord's people. And you have the same idea in um, chapter 49 with regard to the servant himself as an individual. He's born from his mother's womb. And it's not just his earthly mother. It's also alluding to his heavenly birth, spiritual birth. They can be born spiritually and now they can also be born in a temporal sense, is the people of God, which is also a spiritual birth, in a sense, with temporal consequences. Be not afraid, O Jacob, my servant, and Yeshua, in whom I have chosen. Again, the idea that there is possible justification for fear, which fear is he's allaying now and saying, don't be afraid. Yeshua here appears instead of Israel, and Yeshua means straight one, like a straight arrow, and it comes from the Hebrew word yashar, meaning straight. And it was a name given to Israel in the days of Moses, but more applying to elect Israel, or righteous Israel, straight Israel. And he's holding that name out as a type for righteousness. I will pour water on the thirsty soil, showers upon the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring, my blessing upon your posterity. Once they do covenant with the Lord, once they do serve Him, then the blessings of the covenant again take effect. They may be living in an oppressed state. They may find themselves born into a situation of covenant curse. The ground may be thirsty and dry, which is an indication of covenant curse. But it can be turned into a situation of blessing. Like it was for Abraham, he was born into a situation of covenant curse. There was a famine in the land. He was brought into the promised land, him and 300 souls with him, because of Abraham's righteousness. So Abraham became God's servant. So can they. But that reversal of circumstances from covenant curse to covenant blessing also has a particular focus in this case in that they're coming in the exodus through the wilderness and that is the place that will be turned into fruitfulness. It's not just life in general, or the situation into which they are born in general, though that is part of it. If they will serve God, then they will come in the Exodus, as we've seen, and also that wilderness will blossom. The pouring out of His Spirit on their offspring is spirit endowment that they and their offspring both experience, and that is the same spirit endowment that the servant has. The Lord endowed him with His Spirit. And the whole purpose of the servant's mission is that he will minister to these who are the Lord's covenant people 
and lift them up from their lost and fallen or from their blind and deaf and ignorant state to his own level, that they may receive the same blessings as he has received. And in ministering to them, then he himself ascends the spiritual ladder to a higher level than he was on before. And so it goes up. Everybody keeps going up from one stage to the next as they fulfill their new callings. Also, the idea of dry ground and offspring implies land and offspring, or land and seed, which are the two main ingredients of the covenant, of God's covenant with Abraham. He was promised a land of inheritance and everlasting offspring. And so it is here. We see several ways in which these people are being blessed. My blessing on your posterity, which are the blessings of the covenant. They shall shoot up like grass among streams of water, like willows by running brooks. That's a whole different situation from dry and thirsty ground. From a situation of drought, now there's plenty. Ground is fertile and it's yielding foliage. One will say, I am the Lord's, and another name himself Jacob, verse 5. Yet others will inscribe on their arm to the Lord and adopt the name Israel. They're calling themselves Israel and Jacob and so forth, or consecrating themselves and their lives to the Lord, it says. But that also implies that they're now keeping covenant with the Lord. They want to identify themselves with the Lord and with his covenant people. That also implies that among them are those who maybe didn't know about Israel or Jacob. Those were not names they were commonly called by. So in other words, they may have been God's people who were assimilated among the nations of the world, whom the servant now calls back. And now they begin to identify themselves as God's people Israel or Jacob, and to call themselves by those names. So it also implies that after having been in an alienated state, they're now resuming their proper identity. Repatriation is the word I was looking for. Verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, the Lord of hosts, their Redeemer, I was at the first and I am at the last. Apart from me there is no God. Again, the dichotomy and the ambivalence still going on. Gradually it will disappear, but there are still some who are holding back and he still has to address them. He has to keep reasserting who he is so that they can have a clear idea of their covenant God. Here we see the King of Israel, the Lord of hosts, the Redeemer, the Lord, Jehovah. All of these are attributes of God, which he is emphasizing so that the people will have a clear idea of what kind of God it is that they're worshipping or that they're covenanting with. They can't be his covenant people and worship him truly unless they have a clear idea of his attributes. He's their suzerain, Lord, with whom they covenant. He's the Lord of hosts. He has all power in heaven and on earth. He commands the hosts of heaven. And he's their redeemer, the one who gives himself as an offering for their sins. I was at the first and I am at the last. Apart from me there is no God. Meaning, first of all, that first and last he is God. There is no other. Secondly, that the same God who instituted Israel's history was all part of God's plan of salvation for humanity. That same God who did miracles at the first and who intervened and redeemed his people anciently will do so again in the end. And is that same God in whom they may trust. That God who brought Israel out of Egypt is still the same God today and he can do it today again. And he will. Apart from me there is no God. 
because people are worshipping idols and having other gods before him still. So this is a polemic and an exhortation to God's people to accept the only true God. Verse 7, Who predicts what happens as do I, and is the equal of me in appointing a people from of old as types foretelling things to come? This kind of gives uh, an extra meaning to the idea of God being at the first and at the last, because this proclaims the idea that the people of old, of Israel, these covenant people of old, foretell things to come in their history. What happened in the past becomes a type for the future. I'll read it again. Who predicts what happens as do I, and is the equal of me in appointing a people from of old as types foretelling things to come? The people, through the motions that they went through anciently, through the events that they experienced, by those very things are foretelling the things that are to come. And that's how Isaiah prophesies, using types. A new exodus pattern after the old exodus, a new Assyrian destruction like the old Assyrian destruction, a new deliverance in the latter days, pattern after the old deliverances and so forth. Be not perturbed or shaken. Have I not made it known to you from of old? Did I not foretell it, you being my witnesses? How did he foretell it from of old? Well, right here in the book of Isaiah, for one. The prophets foretold the end from the beginning anciently, and they did it particularly in the sense of writing down what happened anciently, because those things, those events of history would repeat themselves, so that the latter days would be a mirror of the past in many ways. Did I not foretell it, you being my witnesses? They were his witnesses anciently, the prophets were at least, and today his people are being called as his witnesses, as we saw earlier. So they should speak up and talk about it and bring others to the covenant also because that's the only hope for humanity. Is there a God then apart from me? There is no rock unknown to me. Again, the polemic against idolaters. Don't hang on to your idols because you and your idols will all disappear from the earth. There is only one God. He's a rock upon which you may stand. He's a foundation upon which you may build. If you don't do that, he will become a rock of stumbling or a stone of stumbling, as Isaiah says. So you can either build upon him or he'll crush you. All who manufacture idols are deranged. So against this God, who is the Redeemer of Israel, who is your Maker, who has chosen you to be his servant and his witnesses, on the other side of the spectrum you have the idols, the false gods, who are really no gods. They're made by human hands, and all who manufacture them are deranged. They should be locked up in a madhouse. They will. Eventually they'll meet that kind of fate, as we'll see here. This is where Isaiah has fun. From 9 through 20, there's a big satire on the idol makers. And those gods prove to be no salvation in the Day of Judgment, but actually lead the people to destruction. All who manufacture idols are deranged. The things they cherish profit nothing. Those who promote them are themselves sightless and mindless to their own dismay. So they remain in a state of blindness so long as they hang on to that economic system that manufactures and promotes them and sells them. They waste the days of their probation on the earth in doing so. The purpose of coming to this world is not to get involved in the manufacture and promotion and sale of idols and to make a living that way but it is to worship God and to serve Him and to promote His cause 
to be witnesses for him, and so forth. So their whole sojourn on this earth will have been wasted if that is the extent of their activity and lifestyle. Those who promote them are themselves sightless and mindless to their own dismay, to their own dismay in the day of judgment, when those things will prove to be totally fruitless. Verse 10, Who would fashion a god or cast an idol that cannot benefit them? Well, there are plenty who do. In fact, most of the society in Babylon is geared around that system of fashioning gods and casting idols, the works of men's hands. But who would? If you really think about it, only dummies would do so. Their whole society is confused, he says in verse 11. Their fabricators are mere mortals. The uh, people themselves are mortals, and mortals are confused, unless they have the light of God in them. Were they all to assemble and take a stand before me, they would at once cringe in fear. If they knew God, if they really had an accurate idea of Him, and some personal knowledge of Him, they would see their own nothingness, they would see their own decrepit state, and they would cringe in fear before Him, realizing their error. The smith with his tools works the iron over the coals and gives it shape by hammering. He forges his God by the strength of his arm. When he becomes hungry, he no longer has strength. If he fails to drink water, he begins to grow faint. We saw earlier that the God of heaven and earth does not grow faint, nor do those who wait for him and rely upon him, whom he strengthens and empowers. But in this social economic system, These mortals, these confused people, are manufacturing their idols, and they're just human, so the things they make are even less than that, less than human. They're not gods at all. The woodworker draws a diagram, sketching his idol with a marker. He creates it by chiseling to the outline of the dividers. He gives it a human likeness, resembling man's beauty, fit to lodge in a house. So if you have a picture of a pretty woman or picture of a handsome guy like sports stars or movie stars or if you advertise your motor cars or your products and you have a picture of a beautiful person there it helps sell your thing right because it links the one idea to the other but notice that they still have to rely on the human likeness to add any worth to their creations and of course the human likeness is god's own likeness in which he's created man So they try to make their gods like humans, in a sense, but really they're much less than human, and not even that. He's required to cut down cedars. He must select holmes and oaks and care for them among the trees of the forest. He plants firs, which the rain makes grow, that which serves men for fuel, which they use to warm themselves, or light fire with to bake bread. Of that they create gods which they adore. From it they make idols to which they stoop. So Isaiah is going into great detail here to let you know that this is not just a sporadic pastime. This is something that involves everybody. It's the daily labor of a lot of people in society. It is an entire social economic system in which people are involved. Verse 16, half of it they burn in the fire. That's the wood which they chop down from the trees. Over it they broil a roast. They eat the meat and are satisfied. They also warm themselves and say, Ah, it's warm in front of the fire. From the rest they make a god, their idol, to which they bow in adoration and pray, Save us, you are our god. They don't make the connection that 
the same piece of wood that warmed them in front of the fire, which they baked food over, is the same piece from which they're making their god, in which they put so much store, which they idolize. Eighteen, they have become unaware and insensible. Their eyes are glazed so that they cannot see. Their minds are incapable of discernment. They reflect not, nor have the sense or comprehension to say, part of this I burnt in the fire. I also baked bread in its embers, roasted meat and ate it. Am I not making an abomination of what is left? Do I not stoop to a mere lump of wood? They are followers of ashes. Their deluded minds have distracted them. They cannot liberate themselves from them or say, Surely this thing in my hand is a fraud. Here we have the chaos motif again, ashes like dust and other chaos motifs. And the lump of wood. Wood is one of those common elements versus semi-precious or precious. And so these people are really into kind of a low lifestyle. They're followers of ashes because the very things they cherish and the things in which they're involved will all be reduced to ashes someday, and they with them, if they can't let this go, if they can't repent from it. They cannot liberate themselves from them, showing that they're in bondage to that system. The only one that can liberate them from it is God himself. And he will do so if they repent of it, if they turn to him, if they call upon him, if they respond to the servant's mission at that time. Verse 21, Ponder these things, O Jacob, and you, O Israel, for you are my servant. I have created you to be my servant, O Israel. Do not disregard me. Now again, he keeps repeating this over and over, that Israel is to be his servant. His people are to serve him, not the idols. They have a mission on this earth. They're being created by him to be his servant. If they disregard him, then they become idolaters. I have removed your offenses like a thick fog, verse 22, your sins like a cloud of mist. Mist and fog, again, are chaos motifs. So we have their ashes, verse 20, chaos. I have created you to be my servant, verse 21, it's creation. And offenses like a thick fog, sins like a cloud of mist, we have chaos there again, or confusion. If you walked in a mist, you'd be confused. Sins do that to you. They make you blind and confused. There are also offenses to God. Sins are an offense. People don't need to sin. They don't need to transgress. Return to me, I have redeemed you. The word return in Hebrew is the same word as repent. So he's calling them to repentance. And if they repent, then they are redeemed, because he's already paid the price of their redemption. Verse 23, Sing, O heavens, for what the Lord has done. Cause it to resound, O earth beneath Burst into song, O mountains, forests, and all trees therein. The Lord has redeemed Jacob. He shall be glorified in Israel. This is another short song of salvation, or praise of God. And the heavens and the earth are called upon. Well, the heavens and the earth were witnesses of the Sinai covenant, as we mentioned in the beginning. And they were called upon to witness Israel's transgression in chapter 1. And here, finally, we begin to see a turnaround from that situation that there are those who repent of transgression, and now the heavens and the earth may again rejoice because there is a return to the covenant, to God. Also, the idea of bursting into song by mountains, forests, and trees alludes to the exodus and to the wilderness blossoming and becoming fruitful and sprouting vegetation. So a situation of covenant blessing. 
And on another level, mountains, forests, and trees are also metaphors of people. Mountains of nations, forests of cities, and trees of people. And so the people themselves and nations and cities are bursting into song at Israel's redemption. The Lord has redeemed Jacob, he shall be glorified in Israel when they again become his covenant people. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord, the maker of all things, who alone suspends the heavens, who himself gives form to the earth. Remember what I said earlier, when he starts talking about himself as creator, then you know what's coming up. What's coming up is a reference to the servant. And there's this creator God, the all-powerful maker of heaven and earth, who lends the servant his authority, who validates his servant in his mission. And so every time there's a servant passage, you also have this motif of God is creator. But it's also a teaching tool to let God's people know about his attributes. This is not like an idol God, like some statue or some dead piece of manufacture. This is a living God. He's a redeemer. He wipes away our sins. He's formed us from the womb both spiritually and temporally. He's the Lord or Jehovah who was and who is and who will be. He's the maker of all things. It was he who suspended the heavens who gives form to the earth. That's the kind of God we're dealing with. That's the kind of God we're covenanting with. And he's the one in whom we can trust. Verse 25, Who annuls the predictions of impostors and makes fools of diviners who turns wise men about and makes nonsense of their knowledge. And this is not the kind of book knowledge that we have to deal with. The knowledge of God transcends book knowledge and the philosophies of men and the predictions of people who uh, give us, through their statistics and their graphs, a trend of the way things are going to go. All that will be overturned. The book learning of men and human wisdom and knowledge and predictions will be turned about, made nonsense of. That is not knowledge compared to the knowledge of God. Who fulfills the word of his servant accomplishes the aim of his messengers. You know that a man is of God if he prophesies in the name of God as Moses said and he prophesies the truth then you know he's of God and if he prophesies something that does not come to pass then you know that he's a false prophet. In the Elijah scenario There was one prophet of God for every 500 false prophets, so we know that the ratio between the one and the other is quite disproportionate. Well, this same God who is the creator and the maker of all things, and who has power to turn the tables on the impostors, the counterfeits, he is the same one who fulfills the word of his servant, because the servant is not an impostor. He may be called by some to be an impostor, but his prophecies will come true because the Lord will fulfill the servant's word. When the servant prays to God, God will answer his prayer. When the servant prophesies, God fulfills the prophecy. Those are the kind of powers that we'll be dealing with. Legitimate divine powers manifested in this servant and in other servants who are called here his messengers. The one servant doesn't do all of this alone. Like Moses... He has a hierarchy. Remember Moses who had lesser judges ruling under him and there were 70 elders of Israel who ruled under Moses. 
and the lesser judges judge the causes of the people. And so it is here in this theocracy, we have God ruling through the administration of his servant, accompanying the servant and assisting him, are these other messengers and servants. Up to this point, we've had the individual servant and the corporate servant. But from about chapter 54, we begin to see that there are other servants in the plural. And those servants are individuals, like the ones here called his messengers, who come out of the corporate servant. Coming out of this corporate servant, they emulate or do the works of the individual servant. And they become like that individual servant. And they work together in harmony to reestablish God's covenant people on the earth called Zion or Jerusalem. And when they have fully accomplished that, then the Lord, who is the king of Zion, comes to rule. But here in chapter 44, we're still in an early stage. We still have the servant kind of newly arrived on the scene, and there's still a lot of idolatry, and he's still working with some people, and some respond and some don't. The servant is still trying to legitimize himself, or God is still in the act of legitimizing his servant. And one of the ways he legitimizes him is to show that when the servant prophesies something, God fulfills what he says. And that's how you know he's of God. Who fulfills the word of his servant, accomplishes the aims of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, it shall be re-inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be rebuilt. Their ruins I will restore. Part of the servant's mission is to restore Jerusalem and Judea. Ancient Jerusalem, of course, was destroyed, and the Jews were scattered by the Babylonians, again later by the Romans, and the place lay desolate for centuries. Now the Jews are back, trying to restore those places, but meeting a lot of opposition from the Muslims, who claim that those lands are theirs. Then the servant comes along and says, these places will be rebuilt. This is the time of restoration. Even the temple foundations must be laid, in verse 28. And of course, the Muslims will say, no, that's our place. We have our mosque there. So this will be kind of a showdown at that time between the servant, or the Lord, who sends him, and any opposition that may stand in the way at that time. When he empowers his servant, at that time, no power will stand in the way. The aims of his messengers and the word of his servant will be fulfilled. And if the servant says, the temple must be rebuilt, these ruins restored here, then it will be done. God will fulfill it. By whatever method it will happen, we don't know, but that's the way it will be. It also implies that there will be controversy at that time about the city of Jerusalem. Some will say, you can't come here, this is our land. And the servant says, or the Lord says to his servant, this is the time to re-inherit the land, this is the time for rebuilding. Verse 27, who says to the deep become dry, I'm drying up your currents. Why should the deep become dry? Because they will be led through the deep to the promised land. This is the time of a new exodus as well. As Israel came out of Egypt through the Red Sea and the deep became dry so that they could walk through on dry ground. This is an exodus motif. It appears in chapter 11 and other places. At the time of that exodus, there will be a great rebuilding program going on. Because where does the exodus of the Lord's people lead? It leads back to the promised land. When they get to the promised land, what are they going to do there? 
rebuild it and re-inhabit it under God's jurisdiction through the agency and administration of the servant whom the Lord has put over this. Who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd. He will do whatsoever I will. The idea of a shepherd of the Lord's people in the context of the deep becoming dry has a parallel in Isaiah in chapter 63, verses 11 through 13, which I cross-reference there in the margin. There it is Moses who is called the Lord's shepherd, and there it also mentions the deep becoming dry. I'll just read that real quick. Then his people recalled the days of Moses of old. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who put into him his Holy Spirit, who made his glorious arm proceed at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them, making an everlasting name for himself when he led them through the deep? Here Isaiah is drawing on a Moses typology. And he's linking that Moses typology of a shepherd in the context of the deep becoming dry to Cyrus, or to the name Cyrus. Why is Cyrus mentioned by name here? Because whenever anyone is mentioned by name, it means that that person has set some kind of precedent in Israel's history. And what did Cyrus set a precedent for in Israel's history? He says that in the next line. He will say of Jerusalem that it must be rebuilt, its temple foundations relayed. Cyrus the Persian, anciently, after the Jews had gone captive into Babylon, allowed the Jews to come back to Palestine and to rebuild the cities and the temple. And Cyrus made a decree that the Jews could do that, and also all nations that had been taken captive by the Assyrians and Babylonians could go back to their lands of origin if they chose at that time. And so Cyrus becomes a type here for what the servant is going to do. Because the servant is going to say to all nations that they can go back to the promised land. All the nations of the Lord's people can go back to the promised land and rebuild it and build the temple. And that will be the time that they can do so, at the time of the servant's mission. So he's like a new Cyrus in that respect, and he follows the ancient type of Cyrus. Because whatever somebody did that set some kind of precedent in Israel's history also becomes a type for the future. Isaiah draws upon those types to predict the future. He predicts new versions of old events. And so he has to draw on Cyrus as a type of what will happen again. But it's not a purely Cyrus figure, is it? It is a Cyrus figure mixed with a Moses figure. The two are fused here. The shepherd in the context of the deep becoming dry is a Moses typology, and the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the temple is a Cyrus typology, and here they're made into a compound or fused. And this is tripped up scholars because they say, oh, Cyrus. So they pounce upon the name of Cyrus and say, well, Isaiah was predicting Cyrus, or he really couldn't predict it because prophets don't really prophesy the future and can't name people still a hundred years in the future. So it must have been written by somebody in the days of Cyrus, somebody called Second Isaiah, and he was the one who wrote this. And so scholars totally missed the message of what is being said here. This is not a pure Cyrus figure. If Isaiah could prophesy the latter days, he certainly could prophesy a hundred years from his own time. And he could certainly name people if he saw things in vision and heard things as he claims he did. Why did he have to mention him at all? 
He had to mention his name because Cyrus set a precedent, or a hundred years from Isaiah's time, would set that precedent. And that precedent would become a type for the end time. This is a compound figure, not a pure historical Cyrus. The Moses typology is what I call an ahistorical element. It's not a historical element that is linked to the historical type of Cyrus. The point is, when the servant comes along, he will be like Cyrus, and he'll be like Moses at one and the same time. Both will be his types. Even that, in itself, is only half of the equation. Because earlier we saw a spirit-endowed servant who led, or who caused Israel to wander through the wilderness. We saw the blind coming through the wilderness, and we saw the law of God, and he's a lawgiver, and they became acquainted with his law, and repented of their transgressions, and they were taught in the wilderness his law, and became illustrious, or they could become so. And that is all the spiritual part of the equation. And here we have the physical part of the equation. The idea that when they do that, then they can physically come out in the Exodus. When they spiritually are tutored by the servant, then they can come in the Exodus. So we have a division here. In chapter 42 and succeeding chapters, we have more the spiritual aspect, and here we have more the temporal aspect of God's deliverance. They come and actually restore ruins. That's physical. They restore the temple. They lay the temple's foundations. That's physical or temporal.